we were trying to go after that that white space, that opportunity where wine, as in its current form, you know, wasn't available. And I think, and then just our joy and ability to work with each other as friends, like let's do something together, let's have fun, let's let's do something where we can start the day with a cup of coffee and how we're going to conquer the day and finish it with a can of wine and enjoy our lives working together. And I think that was the impetus for it. It was, it's pretty simple, you know, seven years later, we're doing it. It's been a lot of fun. We've had a lot of cans of wine, a lot of cup of cups of coffee. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with the founders of Graham and Fisk's Wine in a Can, Graham VC and Fisk Bigger. Headquartered in the 1854 Brick Firehouse in Cleveland's Hinchtown Enclave, their wine in a can is now distributed in over 40 U.S. states, Asia, and the Caribbean, and has won numerous accolades, including being named number 16 on the Wine Enthusiast Magazine Top 100 Best Buy list. Graham and Fisk are childhood pals who met 25 years ago at Camp Roosevelt on the shores of Lake Erie. And in 2015, Graham came to Fisk with the simple idea to put wine in cans. And the rest, which we will explore in our conversation today, is history. Prior to founding and running Graham and Fisk's Wine in a Can, Fisk was a member of the founding team for BB's Kitchen in Aspen, Colorado, where he served as the general manager. In 2011, BB's was named as one of Colorado's top restaurants by Esquire. Meanwhile, Graham is also a neighborhood developer in Hingetown, where the company resides. He serves on the boards of the Cleveland Foundation and the Bidwell Foundation. He is the principal of Northwater Productions, an Emmy award-winning production firm creating content for global brands, arts and cultural institutions, and political campaigns. And additionally, Graham consults for the Aspen Institute and is a contributing producer for the Aspen Ideas Festival and New Orleans Book Festival a contributor for Vanity Fair, and formerly was the project director for the Ohio City Farm, a six-acre urban farm here in Cleveland. Graham and Fisk have an incredible story and dynamic as friends and as co-founders and certainly seem to have the most fun doing it together. So please find yourself a Graham and Fisk swine in a can, crack it open, and enjoy my conversation with Graham and Fisk. I think it's always particularly fun for me doing this podcast when I, I come across things in the real world that I find to be awesome uh, and that I did not realize had their roots, uh, history, backing here I- in Cleveland, only to learn pretty recently what you've built. You know, Graham and Fisk's wine in a can is precisely one of those findings for me, uh, something I came across in the wild and was like, wow, that is a very cool idea and it's well executed. <laughs> and then to be made aware that its its origin story is just a few blocks from, from where I live in Ohio City in Cleveland is, is very exciting. So been looking forward to, to hearing the story of how you know it actually all came together and, and your guys' story as well. So thank you so much for, for coming on today. Jeffrey, thanks so much for having us. And the story really dates back over 30 years ago when Fisk and I first met at summer camp on the shores of Lake Erie. We usually tell people the Great Lakes because yeah, they're not necessarily geographically <laughs> in the Lake Erie, but you know, we went to Camp Roosevelt and Perry and have been the best of pals since. So 
it dates back you know, not only to you know, this part of Cleveland because we're headquartered in the Ohio City Firehouse uh, in the Hingetown enclave of this great neighborhood, but uh, it really goes back to when we were in grade school and we caused trouble together when we were going to this outdoor camp, whether it was on a sailboat or hiking or horseback riding. And then we had different phases in our life that we always reconnected, going to high school together, doing the college internship together, doing the post-college mountain towns together. And then in the spring of 2014, I was renovating the old firehouse here and was covered in construction dust, went to the neighborhood bar for a drink. I was craving wine, wondered why isn't there wine in a can? They had all these craft beers in cans. And I called Fisk up because he was finishing up business school. I'm like, Fisk, what do you think about putting wine in a can and starting a canned wine company? And he was like, sign me up. Yeah, so we got to work in the fall of 2015. We had found a winemaker in California and started selling out of the back of a 1969 Colvera Ultravan uh, store to store, bar to bar, hoping our way to make our, hoping to make our way back to Cleveland. We were entrepreneurs in the supply chain of the Bev Alk industry, and um, distribution is a hard thing to come by. But we were fortunate to have support back here. I think within about six months, we had a, a Ohio partner, and we were able to to, to get back into the uh, firehouse here. And now seven years later, you know, we really look at that year and a half of building and planning the company as crucial as some of the supply chain has squeezed you know, those partnerships that we cultivated from April of 2014 to when we put our first can out on the line uh, in late summer of 2015 are still partners of ours. Uh, we were first mm. movers in the space with regards to putting awesome wine in a can and also developing proprietary blends. So we've got four different types. We've got a white wine with bubbles, a rosé with bubbles, a red still, and a white still. And they're all deliberately non-vintage and non-varietal on the can, but we worked hard to have universal drinkability so that they could stand alone, but then also you'd be your everyday go-to, whether it's you know, when you're barbecuing to when you just want to literally not have to worry about washing any stemware and where my background's in marketing and communications, if this came from the food and beverage world and worked at the Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado, which I think arguably could be one of the largest feeding grounds for sommeliers. And so when you know, we first had this idea, you know, Fisk reached out to his food and beverage network too and said, hey guys, what do you think? And I, I, I mean, a lot of things I want to ask about there, but you know, one of them is what is the perception from, you know, your sommelier friends? <laughs> when we asked a lot of what do you think in 2014 and 2015, um, a lot of the responses are you guys are crazy. But, you know, you fast forward now, and, it was, and, and, and our theory at the time was that there was a dissociation happening between quality and packaging and that the wine industry was slow to adapt. And there's countless examples of that. We've all seen it, whether it's just, you know, the synthetic corks, the screw tops, the, the box wine category. So and that's where we looked at Canis, this open opportunity for us. And so the response that we got was, you know, is there going to be a marketplace for this? But what we held on to was we need to make awesome wine. And that will win them over. So when we got the product and I shifted to them and I said, hey, look, this is what we created. Try it. That's when they came back and said, oh, yeah, it's great. It's really cool. 
And so I think that's always been the, you know, the liquid to lips is Graham and I both sit here drinking a can of wine, you know, has always been is open it up and try it. And then you're going to have that aha moment because what you're also going to find is what the craft brewers found is that mm. cans a better vessel for wine, not all wine, most wine, 90% of wine is not meant to be aged and put in a cellar in a bottle. 90% of wine is meant to be drank within six months. And so if you have a can, which doesn't allow ultraviolet rays to go through, and it doesn't allow oxygen to hit as better seal, we've actually got a more stable product. And so I think over the last seven years, as we've been telling that story and, you know, the message of getting out and the industry's expanded, uh, we've really seen, you know, the, the adaptation and, uh, around it and that like, you know, can wine can't be good mentality fade away. And it's not just our friends that are telling us that we've won <laughs> eight Best Buy awards from Wine Enthusiast Magazine, which is their most coveted accolade because it's high caliber wine at a price that is achievable on a day-to-day basis. And then we were so psyched. Uh, we you took home number 16 on the top 100 list. And it was we were the only canned wine on that list for the 2021 top 100 Best Buy awards. And so it's something that we put on every can. So you've got the fact that Wine Enthusiast Magazine's given us the nod. But then the sommeliers that validate it. But then also, you know, Fisk was you mentioning the destabilizing factors for wine with light and oxygen. You know, there's also just the portability of the ease of drinking out of a can if you're at Cedar Point or if you're at First Energy Stadium. And so we've commonly gotten, as we work to get into places, people say, oh, well, we don't have a huge wine program. And we almost like hearing that as long as the folks are willing to try it, because once we get offered to their consumers, people try it, then they have another one. I was getting my hair cut yesterday at the barber shop, and one of the chairs down the way said, my mom had five of the Graham and Fist wine <laughs> at the Rod Stewart concert at Blossom and had a blast and had so much fun that she called me, you know, both on our way home and then the next day seeing those guys have, they're onto something. So it's that validation and Blossom's a great example. And because this is the land and people know that venue, they did not move a lot of wine because if they were serving it with single serve, it was typically a low caliber juice. Uh, And when you're drinking out of either a crappy plastic cup or you're drinking out of a container that, isn't a proven package like an aluminum can. Each of our cans are 8.4 ounces, and we really are proud about the juice that we put in it. And I've always joked that we're kind of like the hair care for men. Not only are we the founders, but we love drinking our product. And so we are folks that really want to make sure that the quality control is high because we fill our fridge with it. We share it with our friends. It's our names on every can. It's our dogs. It's you know, the firehouse and the retro RV that Fisk had alluded to. So it's very personal to us. And it's a brand that we are really proud of having built the last seven years. So just going back to inception there for a sec. So you're, you're at the local, wait, which bar were you at, by the way? Just curious. We're at ABC Tavern down on 25th. Amazing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're asking why isn't there wine in a can at this point when, when you, when you guys are, are ideating, 
had historically you, you know, worked together in an entrepreneurial capacity, um, just kind of bouncing ideas off each other. Had you worked together before in, in as co-founders? No. So this is the first thing that we've co-founded together, but we've always from grade school bounced ideas off of each other. And it ranges from business ideas to what do you think of you know, this person I want to take out on a date to what do you think about going out and doing a summer in Washington, D.C.? So I think I think the very first one was, you want to try to sail to Canada? I don't think the camp counselors are watching. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> completely. Uh, that's awesome. So I guess having bounced ideas off each other before, you know, why take this one seriously? How do you start to validate that why, why isn't there wine in a can? Uh, what, are, what are the barriers to entry? Why, why haven't people done this historically? Why is now the right time to, to give it a shot? I think we, we both saw the opportunity. I think for us, it clicked. And we, and, and we saw the use case. It was so simple. How great would this to be, be to have at a baseball game? And, and, there was, and the fact that it was simple and obvious to us made us think that there would, that it'd be simple and obvious to others. And that was the white space we were, we, we saw, you know, you talk a lot about disruption and we weren't trying to disrupt anything. We were trying to go after that, that white space, that opportunity where wine as in its current form, you know, wasn't available. And I think, and then just our joy and ability to work with each other as friends, like let's do something together. Let's have fun. Let's, let's do something where we can, start the day with a cup of coffee and how we're going to conquer the day and finish it with a can of wine and enjoy our lives working together. And I think that was the impetus for it. It was, it's pretty simple, you know, seven years later, we're doing it. It's been a lot of fun. We've had a lot of cans of wine, a lot of cup of cups of coffee. As you're, you're working through the, the, the inception of this, what in retrospect did you, you guys find is like your first big break that like, okay, this is not just a, a cool idea that we have, but we're on to something bigger here. We got into the theater at the Ace Hotel in downtown LA before we had the first liquid in a can. So that I think was a great motivator because we thought, okay, if we can do this many cases per month and all of a sudden, you know, the uh, beauty of taking this nationally, you know, it motivated us to realize that there's a there there. I also think there was a flip side to that where it was one of the easier sales that we've had <laughs> and we didn't realize how hard it would be to scale mm. after a really strong first couple of meetings. And so, you know, I think that that was a nice boost from a morale standpoint. It just wasn't necessarily something that we would have, inc- you know, we, we've, not necessarily had that easy of a sale in the last seven years. So it was a good thing, but it was also a little bit of a false peak if you, if you want. I really want to do a, a deep dive here on the kind of branding. Cause I think most of us are familiar with, you know, walking into a wine store, being completely overwhelmed by, you know, the, the variety, the varietals, the geography, not, not necessarily knowing, you know, what it is that that you're buying and and there's all this very particular branding and it it is in some ways tied to the tradition of you know wine has been done a certain way for the last you know hundreds thousands of of years and, and there's there's a tried and true practice how, how do you guys approach a novel 
packaging vehicle of of something that that has been in our culture and society in a particular way for so long? I think it goes back to our first year selling. What we realized is we were selling our story. Well, buyers were both both to buyers in the retail market, the people who control what goes on the shelves or in the stadiums. When it, you know, to your point, we'd show up with this kind of atypical wine guys, um, t-shirts and jeans, talking about canned wine and talking about how we started it with an idea at the bar and an RV in, in Berkeley. And now we're, you know, coming to blossom. And I think the, you know, is this personal interaction that we were having and um, we realized that the brand needed to be, have that to be personal. And I, and, and so that's where Graham and Fisk came from was, is that when we realized this is, it's, it's back again, and I can repeat myself on simple, this is Graham and Fisk wine in Canada. That's where we're selling. I think you're also getting the consumer who doesn't traditionally think of wine being a can, seeing it front and center. And so we have often said it's a little bit of, Ben and Jerry's meets boxed water, you know, from a storytelling <laughs> standpoint. And, you know, we've got our dogs in every can. We've got the firehouse that we're headquartered in. And we've got the 1969 Corvair Ultravan, the retro RV. And, you know, we really think that that passion of the, for the brand and then that foundational you know, multi-decade friendship really resonates both with the consumer and then from a B2B standpoint, the buyers that are the gatekeepers to get on the shelves in the grocery stores or in the concession areas at the stadiums and arenas or on the menu at places that are serving our product on-premise. How, how does, uh, how do you think about competition? Is it, is it, you know, traditional wine in a bottle is the competition? Is it, you know, it's the seltzer proliferation of the last few years? How have you, how you guys thought about the market broadly and, and how you are, are differentiating there? I think our biggest nemesis is the old school mindset of a buyer. So our, our competition isn't necessarily, oh, this other brand or this other category within the space for us, it's really, as soon as we're able to get in front of the consumer, we know that there's pull through. And yet the challenge is more getting that shelf placement as entrepreneurs, as opposed to a giant conglomerate wine house or liquor entity. And so we're not the corporate guys that have a hundred plus brands in their portfolio and thousand different salespeople so you know, for us, it's really getting over that psychological hump that two guys that grew up in Cleveland that have awesome California wine that are put in a can, you have a product that people will buy. It's a real blue ocean in this space. And I still think when you look at the pie chart or the bar graph of the growth of this category, it just still goes up and up. And have you seen as blue ocean as it is, you know, others pick up on and run with the idea that, that you guys are, are running with as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in, you know, you've seen others pick up and I think to your point, you've seen this polar, uh, proliferation of 
RTDs, whether it's cocktails or seltzers um, or canned spritzers. And I think the one thing is we've seen a lot of this come in the industry around the industry change is we still see our opportunity in the wine space. We know the story that we're telling and who we're going after hasn't changed. We're going after wine drinkers. And so um, to Graham's point about a blue ocean, it really has been putting is, you know, putting the earphones on, drown out the noise. Cause you got a lot of people like, are you going to make a seltzer? You're going to make a spritzer. What do you think about the cocktail space? Do we do Graham and Fist, you know, vodka soda. And we really, with wine in a can, you know, we know our lane, we're staying in it. And we know that the, the opportunity is still there and we've got to go after that and not get distracted. And for yeah, folks that want to decipher the alphabet soup, RTD oh, yeah. is ready to drink. <laughs> yeah. So the acronym <laughs> RTD that fists through around, I don't expect everybody to know that it's ready to drink. And we'll try to catch ourselves with some of those acronyms that are you want, way very much inside baseball. Yeah. When we started in this space, Graham and I were on a phone call and someone threw like a very common industry acronym at us. And we were on a Google chat with each other. I'll never forget this. And we like, we're like, O-N-D question? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. O-N-D. I was trying to remember what it was. It was O-N-D. And we're like, what is O-N-D? And everybody's talking about O-N-D. Everybody's talking and, about this O-N-D. And it's October, November, December. And so, so <laughs> I hear that in the alcohol space, it overwhelms every other conversation that's happening. It's like, oh, it's O-N-D, O-N-D. Because a huge number. Yeah, like uh, 60% yeah. of all alcohol is consumed in those three months of the year. It's crazy. That, that's is it. We don't know if that's exactly sixty percent. Yeah. Are we fact checking this? Well, I'm just making sure that <laughs> you said that with great authority. And I'm like, it's a lot of a lot of the yearly uh, consumption happens in OND. So. Right. <laughs> don't fact. Yeah, don't fact check it. But this a lot. Don't fact check that. Where is that one conversation here? I, on that thread, though, I you know, I imagine a, a huge learning curve with this over time, and you know. What what have you found to be people's you know misconceptions about about wine about what it is you're doing things that have kind of surprised you about uh, the the industry that uh, of wine? Wow, I think how cutthroat people are. Like, <laughs> you know, we're just two guys that want to have a good time, and yeah, you know, we would get stabbed in the chest if some of these brands would have their way with us. But you know, we are optimists. We have seen the consumers react to our brand. Uh, we didn't realize how much of a David and Goliath game it was. And I think that's probably some naivete that was good to have or else we wouldn't have gotten into this industry. And yet at the end of the day, it goes back to Fisk's point of you know, two pals that are working towards this shared goal. And we've got a great team that helps us get there. And our truth is real. And we know that once we have our product on a menu or on a shelf, it will move. And so that's really just always our challenge is getting that product placed and our brand on the shelf. And then we're high-fiving each other. It sounds like maybe this wasn't necessarily the case, but I would imagine, you know, the proof in the pudding as you guys are, are, are growing and, and moving more wine in a can over time, the, the, the pitch, the sell becomes easier in some capacities, but you know, yes and no. I think for, as you grow this, yes, the, you know, the, the space has gotten easier. It's more accepted. We aren't walking in mm -hmm. saying, Hey, we're guys with canned wine and immediately getting shut down like we used to. 
But at the same time, too, we're working with there's certain levels of dynamics. There's, you know, Ohio City Brew Stop, great store. You can talk to the owner right there versus the Giant Eagles and the, you know, we're sold in Dave and Busters. Like those are big decision makers that are hard to get to that um, take years of relationships to or being part of this industry for a long time that, you know, Graham and I certainly didn't have seven years ago and that we've had to earn along the way. And that we were still earning. I think that yeah, yeah. the other part is we would get so bummed about uh, placement and then it not getting renewed, not because people weren't buying it, but because there was another sparkly object from you know, a neighborhood bar or a neighborhood liquor store. And yet we then came to realize the transaction effort for a place like that is almost as much as the transaction effort for a Dave and Buster's or a Quaker Steak and Lube or a Applebee's franchise that owns 60 plus units. So we started to focus our attention to those whales and not get bogged down by, oh, it'd be great to have it in these different stores. But the effort to do that is almost as much as the effort to get a multi-unit deal done. So it's stuff that we've definitely learned through the years and emotionally been able to be okay with those placements sunsetting. And and then it's surprising. Somebody will reach out and say, oh, we'd love to have you guys on our shelves again. We said, great, but we're not going to lose sleep over it. The emotional check's hard. That one's because you walk into a place that you know and you love and you're like, God, why aren't we sold here right now? And you're like, I should take the time and energy. And you're like, no, I shouldn't. I've got to focus on <laughs> what Graham said to, you know, it's okay. I'll still come and enjoy this place, but this isn't going to be the thing for us. Like uh, we've got to kind of create that groundswell. Yeah. I mean, focus seems clear to be the theme here, right? It's a small, small product offering, targeted market. Focus and tenacity. Yes. Hustle. You gotta follow up is key. I mean, follow up, follow up, follow up. I mean, I think the one things that we've built a reputation for um, in a in a positive way across the industry is we've made a name for ourselves uh, with you know what I would say in this in this landscape of you know your traditional buying set is like those are the guys who will work harder than anyone else. They're gonna follow up on everything that they say they'll do. And they're relentlessly passionate about it. So I think as long as we do those things, we should be successful. On the grape side of this equation, before it becomes in a can, was there a process to like find the right, you know, blend balance? Uh, how, how did you, how did you figure, you know, this is the the flavor profile we want? Uh, working with the growers and and that whole the whole process. Beauty is we liked to drink before we founded this company. <laughs> so we had a great baseline and we had developed palates. The intolerance. Intolerance. <laughs> so we did do an exhaustive search of different winemakers in wine country out in California. We felt like it was important to have a California wine. We interviewed a bunch of folks and this guy named John who's been in the industry for decades, he syncopated with our philosophy and ethos. 
and got what we were trying to do. We understood the fact that the blend also needed to be unique because you're drinking out of a can and your listeners can't see me, Jeffrey, but when you put your nose, when you're drinking it out of a can, it's not going into the stemware like you'd be drinking if it was bottled juice. Right. You can't so, do the swirl and the Yeah, you're not the doing the swirl. The- so you, you've got to have blends that work without your nose being shoved into a stemware. So we tried a ton of different types and they were all blends again fun process yeah it was a fun process and we (laughs) charged john with making blends that he could replicate by and large year after year regardless of the harvest so you know if say you know the chardonnay had a bad harvest like just like your craft beer you don't know if there was a bad hops harvest or you know, there is a barley infestation, whatever it was, you, know, you just go to the next farm. And so you know, from our perspective, you know, the vineyard isn't as important as the blend at the end. And so to make sure that John's able to pull from various vineyards, pull from various varietals and get that universal drinkability that's consistent can after can, year after year. And he was able to do it and to his credit, seven years into it, you could really put a blindfold on and try various can runs that we've done. And there's that consistency that we think people really appreciate. And, and so even with the, the intense focus, you know, I imagine at one point it didn't start with, you know, bubbles necessarily as an offering of the things you can work on and choose to focus on. When you think about product expansion, not to ask the question that you say that everyone asks you and you're like, we have to focus. But you know, obviously you're weighing different opportunities. At what point does it make sense for for you guys to to take one seriously? And how did you, I guess, first make that decision to to do an expansion? I think with Graham and I, when we both look at each other and nod our heads at the same time. I think it's I think it's that simple. <laughs> I think it's like like there's been ideas he's had that I don't love or certainly ones that I've had that he doesn't love. And like, as soon as we're kind of like in that dance, you know, it's just not going to do the thing. And we have to both be excited about it. I think, well, Bubbles was a good example of that on the white. Rosé, I think was the next example. And then Rosé with Bubbles. And I think, and then, you know, the smaller 250 milliliter can. So I, I think when we kind of say, hey, listen, we're staying in this lane, that doesn't mean we're not innovative or or aren't willing to be innovative. We were innovative. That's how we got here. And, you know, we have to think, and act in a forward-looking manner. We have to go to where the puck's going to be. So, you know, I think for us, it's really in our in our dialogue, where do we think the puck's going to be and how do we get there together and what is going to make us excited about it? And so I think when it's there, you just know it. It's there. It's just what we're going to do. It's a short conversation. When it's not there, it's a long conversation. Yeah, I think that is – you know, the R and D process for us, I think in certain ways is, you know, do we, are we both really excited about this idea? And if we are, we'll go do it. And some of them work and some of them don't. We've got, you know, probably some things that are Googleable that, you know, but that's the whole point. That's it. But either way, it's fun. And it's got, yeah, it's, it's gotta be that mutual head nod and it's gotta stick. So it's not one night of 
ideation and the next day we're definitely going to do it. It's making sure we talk through it and it's not something that fades in a few days, but yeah. we're excited about it. Cause when we do a new skew, it is a year's commitment, not like one year, but like multiple years commitment on it based on what we need to do from a supply chain standpoint, the effort to put into it. So it's nothing that we ever take lightly. When you don't have that mutual head nod, you know, how, how is it that you guys uh, deal with disagreements between each other? Sometimes, you know, in the, in the many co-founder situations I, I've seen, you know, the, the, the friends uh, becoming co-founders, it, it can be complicated at, at times. How, how you guys kind of worked, work through that. We just talk through it. We get in a room, we get in this room. It's the old showers that the firemen used to use like the shared shower. So now it's a conference room with a, a cart table from the Richmond brothers factory. But we sit in here and we put the positives and the deltas and the whiteboard that's right there. And, you know, we talk through it and there haven't been occasions that I can think of where those conversations haven't gotten us to a consensus. So, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take the, the detour to, to the firehouse because I... <laughs> yeah, I think it probably helps that you know, cans of wine are involved. Uh, so, <laughs> so you know, yeah. it, it kind of any edge gets smoothed over the longer you know, we have those discussions. But no, but it's, I, I also think, too, in those conversations, when you're having those, and I think it's just a, a conversation with any partner, is at the end of this conversation or at the end of this we got to walk out of this room as partners. And so like, Mm. even if the whiteboard says, Hey, we, you know, we're at different spots on this. Like, all right, well, you want to go get a can of wine? Uh, and And I think that's, you know, it's, yeah, of course there've been, you know, moments where you're, where we have those conversations, they're few and far between. And they're, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a function of a healthy relationship. Just to be able to know how you're going to work through it. Just come in here let's have a can of wine and get it done. When you think about, you mentioned where the puck is going analogy, how far out are you guys thinking? Like, is there, do you have a vision for, you know, world domination by wine in a can, you know, 10 years from now and working backwards from there? How are you approaching the, I guess, in retrospect, the, the impact, the, the, what you want to do with this company? I always tell folks that reach out and ask about entrepreneurial endeavors is that you're driving really fast and there's always a cliff on the horizon. And some days you're driving closer to the cliff and some days the cliff's farther out from view, but it's always there. And so I think that from a nuts and bolts standpoint, it's always what's your sales velocity and what's your runway in terms of working capital to make sure that the ship's staying afloat. So you know, for us, it's very cyclical. You know, Fisk mentioned OND and we talked about it. You know, we have to have a certain amount of inventory to keep up you know, with sales demand. Uh, so those are all factors that are constant. Uh, you know, we get you know, a phone call and sometimes you know, we need to ratchet up production tenfold to fulfill a particular request. And so I think that was always though, our strategy from day zero was how do we make sure that our model 
is as scalable as possible and making sure that we never felt like you know, we needed to, okay, well, it's only in year four that we'll go above 10,000 cases. It's like, no, we, like we are in a growth mindset all the time. You know, I think that we've you know, evolved in terms of you know, how we see that growth. Is it you know, only in cans of wine? Is it only in you know, certain types of lenses with regards to EBITDA? Is it you know, only in terms of reorders? That fluctuates. But at the end of the day, there's a sign that hangs behind Fisk's desk and it says, move more cans. And that was a conversation very early on that we had about what's our mission and that move more cans. It's true from a you know, forecasting standpoint, five years out to you know, today, when we go through a list of hot sales prospects or people that we need to reorder, you know, we're emailing them, we're picking up the phone and calling them and we're rabid about moving more cans. What, what has you guys most excited looking forward over the next you know, year, call it? Wow. I think over the next year, it's, you know, over the last year, we've expanded our distribution now to 43 states across the U.S. And we've come out of, you know, coming out of this pandemic period, which I know we're certainly still in a pandemic, but the I'd say that in a behavioral mindset, you know, our business shifted 180 degrees twice in the last 12 months. And I think what it did for us was we learned about different verticals of our business. And we're coming out of it now saying we've got three really, we've got three verticals to this business. We have our direct to consumer, which was there for the, the deep pandemic period and was there for a full year. And now we've got retail coming back, both on and off premise, and those count as two verticals. So what we've done over the last year is we've seen those stabilize and, and seeing the retail start to grow and, and, and also retaining and growing direct to consumer. So I think over the next 12 to 18 months is with is really being hopeful in the fact that we can that we in this macro environment have this kind of stable environment that we can continue to to strategize again. So I think it's a little bit short term, but it, it gives us, you know, for the first time we can sit back in a room, you know, we all lit our hair on fire two years ago and um, have been figuring it out. I think for the first time we're really back in a room saying, okay, here is the new environment. Here's what the long term looks like because everything changed on a dime uh, a few years ago. And, and, and so it's nice to plan again. Do you, is there a certain staying power you think to the direct to consumer part of this that that did blow up over the pandemic and maybe is normalized now, but is that there to stay? Yes, very much so. Yeah, I think there's a real contraction with you know, the five minute delivery convenience play. Uh, I think people are more willing to say, "All right, you know, if I, you know, craving Swedish fish uh, or a you know, six pack like." I'm going to walk a couple blocks to grab it and you know, get home. Like I, I don't need to be glued to the couch. We see that with you know, certain entities that are in steep decline with regards to that convenience factor. But I think from a DTC standpoint, anybody who's had the patience and they'll, they'll continue to have that patience for a two or three day 
delivery via FedEx. And we love FedEx. We were a 2020 20, 20, 20, uh, FedEx small business grant winner. They've been great to us and we you know, have continued to grow with them and you know, definitely love those sorts of partners and they've been good to us. So uh, that ability to have our product shipped right to your door, you being able to track it from the moment it leaves our warehouse to when it's at a sorting facility, to when it's on the truck, to when it's on your front porch. Like that's something that I think consumers will not only maintain, but grow from an appetite standpoint. Is there anything that keeps you guys up at night? You know, what are, what are the parts that are, are most challenging, you know, right now, maybe the, any, yeah. What, what has you guys concerned? If anything. His son uh, keeps him up at night and my toddler daughter <laughs> keeps me up at night. So no, I, I think we sleep really well knowing that we've got a great truth and a baseline that when we get up in the morning and we have our really delicious cup of rising star coffee, we then can start to sell our brand to people and share that affinity we have that's very genuine and authentic. Is uh just you know on the on the rising star front has the you know I know you've had a part in this as well but is like the development of Hingetown and and kind of the the progress that's been made there is there any relationship to you know the business um, of of Graham and Fisk's wine in a can or have you just kind of thought about those separately like is there I realize the company is mostly a like I don't know have you thought about opening a uh, wine in a can store in Hingetown. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really the question. You had that conversation. <laughs> that would be one of those aforementioned uh, whiteboard conversations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, we have thought about doing a can cafe or a bar that's focused you know, all on ready to drinks. You know, for us, it goes back to that staying in the lane. And yeah, yeah. the distraction <laughs> to do that with the importance of growing these national accounts that are really the crux of our business. It would be a lot of fun, but it would be a distraction to our core business. Uh, but I think that you know what we have done that is directly involved with the neighborhood work is you know, pop-ups in the summertime and teaming up, you know, be it the Stonewall athletic folks that were in town uh, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, there was a ton of rosé with bubbles flowing at that event uh, outside of Jukebox and between the Transformer Station. So you know, we love that kind of you know, collaboration you know, with our neighbors. You know, we're in the volleyball league that takes place next door. You know, we'll you know, make sure that you know, we team up with the LGBT center and Phyllis, who's amazing to do a fundraiser during June with our pride boxes. So there's a long list that is very civic oriented, be it Fisk being part of the bridge builders class of leadership, Cleveland to, you know, the various boards that you know, we're on, we care deeply about this place. And I think that's you know, what the seed of Hingetown was. And, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it's all about being rabid, about taking an idea and turning it into action. What What does the the company uh, actually look like in, in Cleveland? You know, how, how many how many folks are there, and 
How how is that looking? So, and you think about the old firehouse. You think about the fact that there's a bunk room yeah. <laughs> uh, that is where the firemen used to sleep. And so we've got a half a dozen teammates that fill that bunk room where firemen slept for years and years. And it still has two of the poles in there. And you know, we've got a ton of canned wine. We've got two coolers filled with our awesome wine in a can. We've got a Frosé machine that gets kicked up, uh, you know, every Friday. It's going on tomorrow. It's going on tomorrow. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it's a mighty team uh, that has touch points all over the place. So you know, we'll talk to a water park in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and they're like BFFs with Gracie, who's you know, one of our associates. Uh, you know, we'll have a compliment from an entity in Southern California about the point of sale uh, material that Tyler, uh, who's another colleague, put together. So, you know, it's great to be based in Cleveland, but we're really working in the world, not only with those 40 plus states that Fisk mentioned, but it's exporting to Japan and the Caribbean and making sure that, you know, we can be a Cleveland-based company working on a global scale. Has a gain traction in any place that has been particularly surprising to you? Ooh, yeah, we've had a lot of surprises along the way. I mean, I think some of the surprises, you know, I think one of which I, I think is a good example, you know, when we're tracking sales, we there was this restaurant in Colorado that came up called Bad Axe. It's one of those axe throwing chains. And, and, you know, first we saw it kind of reordering, reordering, going, and then all of a sudden they're doing, you know, two, 300 cases a year. And we're like, man, we are killing it in this axe yeah. throwing chain. So that really <laughs> kind of opened our, I mean, that surprised us. We didn't think much about it, but it really opened our eyes to this entertainment. And, and now if you kind of fast forward, we're in Dave and Buster's, right? Eater. So, I mean, that axe throwing thing surprised me, but now I'm so unsurprised about Dave and Buster's because it opened my eyes to the opportunity there. Graham just mentioned Japan. I think Japan's uh, a pretty cool one. I don't know for you, what's your favorite account out there? I don't know if there's a favorite account, but there's a favorite text that I get, you know, pretty often now of friends from different parts of life that I might not have talked to in a bit, taking a picture with a can of Graham and Fisk wine in a can at a venue that I didn't even know that we were in or at a store that I didn't even know that we had shelf space and and they're like oh my gosh look and they're elated and it's just as a great validation so there's not necessarily one account but there's that text picture that is of pals from different phases of life that always brings a smile to my face that's the best thing to get yeah and then i automatically screenshot it (laughs) and send it to fitz and he does the same (laughs) Where is that? Louisiana. Where in Louisiana? Like, oh my, where? where? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'll we'll close it out here. I'll leave it. Uh, I'll leave some just kind of greenfield for for any you know closing thoughts, reflections on on the journey so far, and then we'll we'll tie it back to to some some stuff in Cleveland. I'm wearing Dockers right now, but I think Nike's whole mantra of just do it is super important for people who are listening and thinking about an entrepreneurial endeavor. And it might be oversimplification, but the fact is if you don't do it, you're going to regret it if it's an idea that's resonated with you. I I guess, you know, mine's a little bit more in the moment and probably got 
from Instagram reel or something like that. But it was, I thought it was an Olympic sprinter talking about when you're chasing your dreams, a third of it's pleasant, a third of it's neutral, and a third of it's hard. It's just the way it is. And I think to Graham's point, this is, uh, it's, it's a hell of a ride. It is so much fun and I wouldn't trade it in for anything in the world. All right. Well, our closing question is related to Cleveland and it is not for your favorite things in Cleveland, but for hidden gems, for things that other folks may not necessarily know about, but perhaps should. Yeah. If somebody hasn't, I, I had lunch that I feel badly for Fisk because you can probably smell it on my breath, but I had an amazing sandwich <laughs> from Larder, which is on the ground oh, floor so good. of the Ohio City Firehouse <laughs> at West 29th and Church. And so if you haven't been to Larder and you're listening to this and it's Tuesday through Saturday, get on your bike or walk over, get in the car and head to 1455 West 29th Street. Well, it would be too dangerous for me to, to work with you guys because <laughs> I would be at Larder every day, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's just like we got Rising Star on one side, we got Larder on the other. I barely leave this place. Then you got great, you know, BJ, you got great, great things in the neighborhood. Don't get me wrong, but uh, good stuff right here. Uh, you know, I was thinking of kind of like a, I mean, just a sunset of Whiskey Island. I don't, you know, there is nothing better than laying down the blanket, bringing a picnic, and um, cracking yeah. up a can of wine. I think that's one of the best date nights I've had in a long time. <laughs> just, you know, finding a spot there. What about you, Jeffrey? What's a spot that we might not, that you've discovered of, of late? Of late? My, my recent favorite has been the, the Redline Greenway development. Uh, I, everything the Metro Parks is amazing, but I've it has brought me a lot of joy having that in the vicinity just to go on a run or a bike. Because then it connects all the way to the towpath, and you can just take that from Ohio City all the way to Akron. It's it's incredible. It is incredible. There, there's a tree that's growing within an old vertical trellis that I I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's really <laughs> neat and just one of those magical nodes within the metro park system so i think it, i would i would second your metro parks red line greenway suggestion awesome well graham fisk this was uh this was awesome uh really appreciate your guys time and, and coming on to to share share your story thanks for having us jeffrey appreciate, appreciate it. it if uh if folks had anything they wanted to follow up with you about what would be the the best way for them to do so Email us at info at grahamandfisk.com. We get them. Easy. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Thanks again, guys. Thanks a lot. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.